Well, church, allow me to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fifth psalm. If you want to use the Pew Bible this morning, you'll find that on page 449 as we continue this little seven-week series in the psalms this summer. We come now to the fifth psalm, and we will be working this morning, as we often do, verse by verse, and sometimes half a verse by half a verse. And I think you'll be aided if you have God's Word open in your lap this morning, you're following along with me as we go. It'll be a powerful reminder that some of the challenging passages in which we'll consider this morning are not my words or any man's words, but are the very words of God, and that we are to bring ourselves into submission to them as we are to all of God's Word. And so um, please find your way to Psalm 5. It's, by the way, good to be back home. Uh, away for two weeks and uh, down at my parents' house down in southern Virginia for a week there playing at the lake. And, uh, and then last week being able to take six of my children backpacking in uh, West Virginia and, and uh, letting God just pour out uh, the showers of blessing upon us and quite literally at times. And uh, we had a wonderful time. And of course, it is always wonderful to be back home. And I look forward to seeing what God would do in us and through us this morning as we consider his word. Hear now the word of God. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I... Through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with the tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now and that we could consider, we praise you once again that you would allow us this opportunity and that you would uh, uh, preserve your word. We believe this is to be the authoritative word of God that we come and consider. And so as we read it, we pray that it, it would in many ways read us, that it would expose us and encourage us and comfort us and point us to Jesus and that you would, as the Lord prayed long, long ago, that you would sanctify your people in truth. Your word is truth. We believe that. And so we come today to hear from our God. Speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
It was late in the 19th century when England was ruled by Queen Victoria, and she happened to attend a worship service in St. Paul's Cathedral, and there she heard a sermon which would change the course of her life. In response to the sermon, she called the court chaplain to her and asked him this question, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? The court chaplain's answer is, there is no way one can be absolutely certain. So what do you think of that answer? Can you be certain in this life of eternal life? Or at best, can you just have a faint hope? Right? Can, can you be confident? And if you say, yeah, well, yes, I can be confident, like my brother Craig is already telling us. What do you base that confidence on? You know, where is the foundation upon which you stand by which you find certainty? Is it in your own goodness, your own righteousness? It's interesting to me that David seems to have a degree of confidence before the Lord. But you notice that his certainty is not based upon his goodness, but upon God's. Consider verse 7. And David says, but I... Through the abundance, not of my goodness, but of your steadfast love, will enter your house. So David has this assurance that he could draw near into the presence of God based upon the overwhelming love of God. And David alone, by the way, is not, a, not, not the only one with such assurance. In fact, Queen Victoria's conversation with her court chaplain was actually published in the court news. It came to the attention of a pastor named John Townsend, who was troubled by the counsel which the queen received. And so he prayed and sent this letter to his queen, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of your most humble subjects, with trembling hands, but with heart-filled love. And because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3.16, Romans 10 9 through 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Now, I imagine many of you are familiar with those verses, aren't you? John 3, 16, I'm sure many of us can recite. And you hear Romans 10, 9 quoted from this pulpit almost every week. And she considered the, the counsel which John Townsend had given her and read those scripture. In fact, two weeks later, the pastor received the following letter to John Townsend. I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I now believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you one day in that place he has prepared for us in heaven, Victoria. It's interestingly to me that, that after her majesty bent her knee in submission to King Jesus, she actually would go on to be quite an evangelist. She carried a little booklet with her in, in which she often gave away that presented the gospel. It explained the work of, of, of Christ for salvation and the assurance that one could have in Jesus Christ. The title of this little booklet that Queen Victoria would give away was entitled Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. And I wonder if, if that title might even be a good title for Psalm 5. And we've seen already that David has a sense of certainty in God's presence. But what about safety? Well, look in verse 12. He says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. He certainly seems to feel safe in God's presence. How about enjoyment? 
Well, look what he says in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Certainty and safety and enjoyment. Would Would you like that? Would you like to live life certain and safe and full of joy? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I think this is what David wants. It seems to be why he is starting his day this way. You notice in verse 3, he's praying to God in the morning. O Lord, in the morning, he says, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You, of course, know the saying, uh, someone got up on the wrong side of the bed. And, And what we mean by that is that someone had a bad start to their day, and the bad start has carried them all along through the day. Well, it seems to me that David's trying to seek a to, to wake up on the good side of the bed, if you will. He, he comes to God in the morning. He says, God, in the morning, I'm going to pray to you. Now, I don't know if you remember, way back in Psalm 3, we also saw that this too was a morning psalm, a morning prayer. And so Psalm 3 and Psalm 5 are both written for the morning. Now, if you remember Psalm 4, we saw in verse 8 of Psalm 4, is an evening psalm. And when we get returned to the, the book of Psalms, we'll see that Psalm 6 is also an evening psalm. So Psalm 3, morning, and then evening, and Psalm 4, and then again in the morning, Psalm 5, and then once again we're back in the evening, Psalm 6. And so we, what we see in the early uh, uh, portion of the book of Psalms that the, David is saying, from the first dawn of morning light to my head hits in the pillow, I want to seek God. And so we consider Psalm 5 today. We might think about how this psalm would help us to start our days even in trouble, in which David once again finds himself. Notice what he does. It will probably be no surprise to you, as we consider these psalms, that David begins by calling for God's help. He calls for God's help. So we see in verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare sacrifice for you and watch. And so as many of the Psalms do, David begins by approaching God in prayer. He does not start with the musings of men. He doesn't so consult the box score of last night's game. But he says, in the morning, I want to start with God. I'm going to seek after the Lord. I'm going to begin my day by talking to God. And one of my hopes and prayers spending this summer in the book of Psalms is that the Psalms would help inform how it is that you and I pray. And I think even these first three verses of Psalm 5 are incredibly helpful. I just kind of went through and surveyed the many different ways in which I see David praying here. And I, I think I came up with like 10 different ways. And I'll, I'll, I won't burden you with all 10, but let me just share a handful of, you, handful, handful of them with you. You see, David begins by praying urgently. Did you see the urgency in his prayer? Give ear to my words, oh God, he says. Consider, he says, pay attention. I think sometimes when we read the Psalms devotionally, we're very respectful and meditative, and of course we should be. But please understand that many times the Psalms are very raw. And there's a great deal of urgency. For instance, in Psalm 55, we read, Oh God, hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint." Or Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. In night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. 
And so what David is doing when he prays, he's not simply checking a box. Okay, I start my day with prayer. Check. I got that off the list. He is urgently calling out to God to attend to his needs. And even though he does so urgently, he prays humbly. You see, he calls God his king, his God. Now, of course, you remember that David himself is a king. But like Queen Victoria, David yields to his king. And I think it's a wonderful reminder to think that the one you pray to, the one you get to pray to, I wonder if you prayed to him today. The one you pray to, no matter how great your difficulties or challenges, no matter how great your accomplishments may be, is far greater. And you belong to him. You see, David also prays personally. He's not just some king. He's my king. He's just not the God. He calls him there in verse 2, my God. I'm not a stranger to him. I belong to him. I'm in a relationship with him. I, I, you know me and I know you. And he speaks to God in personal terms. Later, when Jesus begins to teach about prayer, he'll, he'll unfold the, the mystery of our relationship with God by teaching us that when we pray to him, we ought to pray to him as father. Remember, they said, well, teach us to pray. And he says, well, when you pray, you pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. And in fact, almost every time Jesus ever prayed, he began his prayer by referring to him as a father. And so Jesus is teaching us in this relationship that we have with God that we pray to God like a child speaks to his or her father. I mentioned that I spent this, this week uh, backpacking out in the uh, mountains and plateaus of West Virginia, and I took six of my children with, with me, and we were out on the trail for five days, going from campsite to campsite, and, uh, um, and out there in the wilderness, and times uh, eight, nine, ten miles from the nearest road or nearest car, and there are no facilities out in the wilderness, so you're kind of all on your own. Now, you, you could imagine that a child out in the woods um, for five days well, even adults, we all get kind of ripe, to be perfectly honest. Okay? And we get uh, dirty and filthy, and we're just living in the dirt for five days. And, and there, there was a time in, in which one of my children was particularly dirty. And so um, I asked this child to maybe clean up a little bit in the river next to camp. And, and this child, uh, the seat of this individual's pants were dirty. And this, this little one said, Daddy, will you help me wash the seat of my pants? No, I said, of course, I'd be happy to help you. I'm glad to. Well, I was also backpacking with a very good friend of mine, and he brought two of his children along. Now, if my friend would have asked me the same question, Stephen, will you help me wash the seat of my pants? Right? He would have got a far different response, wouldn't he? So the same identical question, two different responses. Why? What's the difference? Well, the relationship. The relationship I have with my children is not the same relationship that I have with my friends. And, and the Bible teaches us that when we speak to God, we speak to him not as a friend, though he is, certainly. But primarily and fundamentally, we speak to him as a father. And I think so many times, in fact, we approach people, pray not to God, not even as a friend, but they talk to God as if he was their boss, and therefore their prayers are formal. Even Formal prayers certainly are appropriate at times, but, no, but not always. And, and they pray to God only occasionally and only when, when there is trouble which they need God to attend to. But if God is your Father, you understand your prayers will be bold, won't they? Your prayers will be intimate. Your prayers will be, be joyful. Your prayers will be direct. Some people don't pray to God because they've blown it. You ever feel that temptation? 
I've sinned. I feel unworthy. You know, after what I did, how, how, can, I, how can I show up to God? How can I, how can I come and talk to God? How can I, you know, I, I need a period of time. I have to wait. Please, if you ever have that mentality, because I just committed this sin, I therefore cannot approach God for a period of time. You are not treating God as a father. You're treating him as a boss. You are in a sense saying, how can I, show, how can I ask for my wages if I've showed up late for work? And yes, you, should not, you shouldn't ask for your wages with a boss if you showed up late for, for work. But, but God is not your boss. God is your father. You are in a relationship with, with you. He knows you, by the way. He knows that you've blown it. And I'll tell you, as a father of many kids, when my kids sin and repent, I don't want them to run from me. I want them to run to me. And see, this is who God is. And David begins to understand, or teaches us, I should say, that I'm in relationship with God. He belongs to me, and I belong to him. And therefore, he can pray intimately. Notice, he says in verse 1, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Sometimes our troubles are so great that we're not even sure what we should pray. We don't even know the words to offer. And all we can do is sigh and groan and cry. And David says to God, when the burdens of my life are so great that I don't have words, you listen to even my tears. You listen to my groans. And perhaps it's because of this intimacy we see David prays consistently. There in verse 3, He says of God, in the morning you hear my voice. And then again, you notice he repeats it. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He says, I'm going to start the day with you. And I think this is emphasized as he, as he repeats this. He says, as, as you, you should understand, as you wake in the morning, do you, do you realize when you wake up, the God of the universe who happens to be your father is right there with you? Do you acknowledge that? Do you speak to with him? You start your day approaching him morning by morning. George Mueller, the great man of prayer, taught the power of consistent prayer. He prayed for two unbelieving friends for 60 years every day. For 59 years, neither of them would receive Christ. In fact, it wasn't until a few days before George Mueller's death, probably at the last sermon he ever preached, that one of his friends who he had prayed for every single day without fail for 60 years came to faith in Christ. The other, well, he took about 61 years. A year after George Mueller died, he too submitted to Christ. We ought to, as Jesus has taught us, pray, always pray, and not give up. Well, lastly, let me point out that it seems to me that David teaches us to pray expectantly. You notice that last word there in verse 3. David says, I'm going to watch. After he talks about, to God and to, speaks of his prayer, David says, now I'm going to step back and watch. You see, David expects an answer, doesn't he? I wonder, do you expect God to answer your prayers? Do you pray to God and then say, okay, God, I'm going to now watch to see what you will do. Do you think God hears your cries and consider your groanings, and then do you expect him to, to act in response to them? In, in this Saturday, I'll be traveling once again to Ghana. I've gone every year in the last four years. And often when I, I travel, my children ask me, they, especially the younger ones, they say, Daddy, will you bring us something back from your travels? And, and uh, you, know, you know what they expect when I return. 
Well, they expect something, right? The very asking of their father has a built-in expectation that their father will come through. And so what do they do? Well, they watch for my return. We live a mile down a gravel road. And my children, by the way, are not content to stay at home, right? So they, you, you'll all be driving down the gravel road, and one will pop out from behind a rock, and another will swing down from a tree, and, right? And, and they'll all be running around with streamers and, and, and postcard, uh, you know, of cards of, of welcome and, and so forth. And they are coming, and they're, what are they doing? They're waiting. They're watching for me to return. Is that how you pray? You look for God to answer. It's none other than Charles Spurgeon who says, do we not forget to watch the results of our supplications? We sow the seed and are too idle to seek a harvest. How can we expect the Lord to open the windows of his grace and pour out a blessing if, he, if we will not open the windows of expectation and look for the promised favor? Let holy preparation link hands with patient expectations and we shall have far larger answers to our prayers. But all this kind of raises the question, how can David be so confident? How is he sure that God will answer? Well, the rest of the psalm, David shows he trusts in God because of who God is. In fact, there are four additional stanzas that, in this psalm that really alternate between man's wickedness and God's greatness. And he goes, he says, God, you despise wickedness, and God, you're great, but God, you can't stand evil, and God, you're wonderful. And in them, what we do is we see the character of God. And so I want you to, to think this morning as we look at the rest of this psalm and the character of God revealed in this psalm as a way to start your day to think about who God is even as you pray to him. And, and you're going to discover something that this is actually the, what psalmist does quite often. He's constantly reminding God of who he is. He's a God, you're this and you're not that and you do this. And the, way, the reason he's doing that is not because God has forgotten who he is or what he does, but he's using that as a basis for his prayer. So he says, God, you are like this, therefore do this. Or, God, you don't do that, therefore will you do this for me? And David begins by reminding God that he is holy. So the first characteristic of God that David seems to rehearse in his own heart as he speaks to God is, is that God is holy. Now, in these verses, to be perfectly honest, verses 4 through 6, which we'll consider a moment, some of them are very startling. Um, they explain the holiness of God in how God relates to sinners. So you'll see David speak about the wicked and evil ones and liars and murderers. And, and there, there in this passage, um, there are some phrases that will catch you off guard. Um, and, and you'll read it. You'll take, a, you'll take a second glance. Did he really say what I think he just saw? And to be honest, I've struggled through these, these, these handful of verses. I even went to the elders uh, a number of weeks ago and said, I, I need you to check me because this is what I'm thinking it says. But I, I, I desperately don't want to say what it does not say. And, uh, and, and there's, so with some trepidation, I come to this passage. There's a, there's a great temptation to run from this, by the way. And most of the commentaries in which I consulted do. They have a word or two of comment and then off they go onto more pleasing passages. But as we say, listen, if, if we, we don't take the whole word of God, how will, and we just, agree, we just study the parts we agree with, how will God ever contradict us? How will God ever challenge us? How will God ever disagree with us? How will God ever push us? And so in, in light of that, and we, we see, the, if you will, these five, in these next verses, these five challenging steps up to the throne of a holy God as we see God's perspective on evil. And, and it's my prayer that, that it will be our perspective as well. 
And so look what he says there. He says, he begins by saying, in, in the, under the subheading, God is holy, he, he says, God has this displeasure with evil. There in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So please uh, be certain that God does not think sin is funny. He doesn't think it's enjoyable. Right? He doesn't find wickedness attractive in any way. And so already, when we think about God's holiness, you see how different he is from us. Because we like a little wickedness every once in a while, don't we? If we're being honest, we root for it, we giggle at it at least, find it amusing. Well, God is not like us. He does not. He does not delight in wickedness. He does not delight in sin. In fact, in the, God is very, not only unique from us, he's unique from all other of these ancient pagan gods. You see, the pagan gods that surrounded Israel, they were different from humans in two ways. They were different from humans because they were powerful, and they were different from humans because they lived a long time. But they were not, you study all the stories of the pagan gods, they were not different in terms of morality. So all the gods, even the Greek gods, the Roman pantheon, and all of them, they were, all those gods had the same moral hang-ups that all humans do. That is, they too acted in anger and lust and greed, and they would lie, and they would manipulate, and they would murder. And this is how the ancient cultures explained the existence of evil. They said it comes from the gods. Well, you see, the biblical God is presented, unlike any other god that was known in that day, as entirely good. Therefore, he never does evil. He takes no delight in it. Now think about that. God does not take delight in evil. And then think about the millions and millions of dollars that are spent on wickedness. I mean, this is a world he created, a world he loves. And you think about the millions and millions of people right now engaging in wickedness and celebrating wickedness and promoting wickedness and laughing at wickedness. And you can see God's trouble with the sin in this world. In fact, God will be separate from evil. He not only takes displeasure with evil, he'll be separate from it. As you read on, on in verse four, evil may not dwell with you. You remember Moses who pleaded to see God's glory and God said to him, you can't see me for no one may see me and live. That is, God is so incompatible with evil where God exists, evil cannot. Which is why I think if you have this experience of drawing closer to God, you become more aware of your sin. You ever experienced that? You become more aware of where you're following short. Remember when Isaiah had that wonderful vision of God? And what did he fall down God's feet and says, I'm just so happy to be here. This is wonderful. And he said, woe to me, for I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember when Peter got a glimpse of Jesus' divinity there and that miraculous catch? What did Peter do? Fall down Jesus' feet and give him a big hug? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Right, you see, God, as we draw close to God, we, we re- we'll, we'll become more aware of the sin in our life because God can't be close with evil, can't stand in his presence. Why we read in the New Testament, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, this is an ongoing work, certainly. But my hope in even thinking about these verses is that as we consider the incompatibility of God with sin, you would find a powerful motivation in yourself towards righteousness. In fact, you even notice that God not only has displeasure with evil, is separate from evil, he will dismiss all evil. Read verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You know, when the wicked, they, they boast. When they, when they win, they boast a little bit. They swagger, don't they? They swagger because they think they've won. 
Well, God here tells us they haven't won, that they will not stand before the Lord, that no one will boast before God Almighty, but they will be banished. They will be sent from his presence. In fact, we see here in verse 5 that God even despises evil. And look what he says, somewhat startling to us, as I already mentioned there at the end of verse 5, you hate all evildoers. That troubles us in many ways, I think. One way is because we have this saying in Christianity that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And so when we come to a passage that says God hates all evildoers, we're, we're not quite sure what to do with that, are we? And by the way, this is just not a one-off. The first 50 Psalms were told 14 different times that God hates the sinner. For instance, in Psalm 11, verse 5, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, the tendency here, well, at least I'll tell you my tendency, my sinful tendency, is to say, well, it can't, can't mean what it says, right? Uh, that, that, it can't be mean that God hates all evildoers. And, and, and what, what you want to make it more appealing. Than, at least that's my, it's like you want to cover the broccoli with cheese in order to get it down, right? And so, but I, I think what we need to do is let the Bible say what it says. And it says God hates all evildoers. Now, we need to understand that. And I think when the reference to evildoers here, he's not referring to people who dabble in sin. I think he's referring to people who have this evils their way of life. They've given themselves over to it. I think we also need to affirm in John 3.16, as we already mentioned, for God so loved the world. Now, God loves all people. I think that is undeniable biblical truth. And yet, we also have passages that say God hates evildoers. Somehow, there's a mystery there. And it might be, as some have suggested, that God loves all people in their essence. I mean, we are God's image bearers. We're his creation. Therefore, he loves us. But in our function, in our conduct as workers of evil, God hates them. I I, I would lastly say, in, in light of this passage, I think you will never really truly appreciate the greatness of God's acceptance of you until you understand God's hatred for sin and sinners. That, right, we read that passage, you hate all evildoers, do you not, do you not identify yourself with that? That was me. I lived for 17 years like that, in total rebellion to God. And that I have been saved from the hatred of God by the love of God that is poured out on Calvary. And that, I think, meditating on this this little passage, maybe it's good for us to think about these little four words that, that you hate all evildoers and then think, I'm accepted by you. That just might make the gospel all the more sweeter and all the more enjoyable and all the more glorious. As the modern hymn says, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. You also see, as David walks up to the holy throne of God, that God destroys evil. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So those who lie or murder are, according to Scripture, abhorred by God. They will be destroyed. He says there very plainly in verse 6, God is good and loves that which is good and beautiful and true. And one day he will purge the world from all that is wicked and violent and dishonest and proud. And so we see that we worship a holy God. But you read this, and I don't know if you're reminded of who wrote it. 
Remember, it's David who wrote these words. It's David who wrote, God, you abhor the liar and the murderer there in verse 6. It makes you wonder, well, David, did you ever lie? Well, you know he did on more than one occasion. In fact, I would say you take the accumulated lies of everybody in this room, and one single lie with David did far more damage as he was once fleeing from Saul found the godly priest Ahimelech and said to him, we are on a secret mission sent by the king. Will you please give us refuge? Ahimelech, believing the lie, did so. Saul came by the day after, realizing Ahimelech had given refuge to, king da- uh, to David, who was not king, by the way, at that time. And what did Saul do? He killed 85 priests in response to that, all because David lied. What about murder? Did David ever murder? Well, he was complicit in it, at least. Godly man Uriah, after, by the way, he stole his wife, which is a despicable thing to do, he went on to have this godly, righteous man, this God-fearing man, murdered. That's interesting, isn't it, then? (laughs) Because here's the man who, who has lied and who has murdered and yet goes and says, you know, God, in the morning I will approach you and I'm I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to do you. When he says, he himself says that, God, you hate the very things in which I have done. And I wonder if David is feeling this burden, even as he thinks about the holiness of God, which is why he might move to celebrate God's love. As you consider God's character, it's good to think about his holiness, but it's also good to think about that God is loving, as you see in verse 7. But I, he says. So he just talked about all these evil people, and now he says, but I. So here's the contrast. And here we expect David to say, but I'm not like them right? They're evil, they're wicked, they're murderers, but I'm good and righteous, and therefore, that's why I'm on your team. But notice what he says. He says, but I, not through my own goodness, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. You see, David knows his own heart. He says, I don't dwell with you, God, because I'm any better than them. I dwell with, the only reason I dwell with you, the only reason I can enter your house is because of your love. In fact, it reminds me of, I think, similar words in which the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. Remember in that great chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, that Paul would, would write that we, we all are dead in our sin. And that we all are following the, the prince of the power of, of air, the devil himself. That we, we all are, are sons of disobedience, Paul says. We all are objects of God's wrath. But then he gets to verse 4. And he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved right so we don't we don't look inside us to justify our presence with God we don't say God I'm good God I did this God I've done that God I've avoided this David doesn't point to something within him He points to something within God. He says it's because of your steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed, which is perhaps the most important word in all the Old Testament, your covenantal faithfulness, your commitment to me, the the love that has been initiated by God, the love that God gives to, to his people to bring them into a relationship with him. And David says that your steadfast, unfailing love, you notice what he says in verse seven, is abundant. It's overflowing. God's love is lavish. It's unending. And because I have your love, David says, you therefore will have my worship. As we see in verse 7, I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. You see, David comes to worship God not out of a sense of a duty, 
He comes thinking of God's love, doesn't he? He he comes, if you will, saying, I can't believe you love me. You love me. And therefore, I just want to be with you. I just want to fall down at your throne. I think we too, my brothers and sisters of Christ, we too should be motivated by God's love to gather with his people. I wonder what it says if God's people are gathering to worship God and we're all coming together and we want to sing his praises and we want to pray to him and we want to give, bring our offerings and we want to, we want to take the, the, the Lord's Supper and we want to, to hear him, uh, his word preached. And we say, well, I don't know. I think I'll skip out on this one. I, I just think that idea is totally foreign to David. He says, because you love me, I, I, I will. I am coming. I can't wait to get there and, and worship you and learn about you and follow you and pledge my love to you. And David says, because I have your love, I will worship you. But he doesn't stop there. That love that leads to worship is a worship that leads to obedience. Look what he says in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. I want to follow you. I want to be a righteous man. But he knows himself once again. And so he says, God, if I'm to be righteous, I'm going to need help. Why? Because I'm surrounded, he says, of my enemies. Liars and deceivers, they're all around me. That is, temptation is all about me. And so he says to God, lead me in righteousness. And we might think that our our enemies are not just about us. They certainly are, but the enemy is within us. Right? So do you ever pray, lead me in righteousness? Or as David would later write in the 23rd Psalm, lead me in passive righteousness for your name's sake. You ever pray like that? You ever pray, God, my heart is bent away from you. Lead me today in integrity. God, I don't want to lie today. I, I, I just want to be truthful today. Lead me in honesty. God, I, I don't want to lust today. Lead me in purity. I don't want to be proud today, God. I just feel it. I just feel the, the arrogance rising up in me. Will you lead me in humility? You ever pray like that? It seems like David saying, God, I need your help. You, I, I have your love, but I need your help to, to live a life that brings you honor. And so lead me. My enemies are around me. They're going to tempt me. And it's almost as if thinking about his enemies, he returns to discussing them as he remembers, thirdly, that God is just. You see in verse 9, I'm afraid more troubling truths, where he says, For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with the tongue. You notice here, most of the focus is on what comes out of their mouth, and it's, it's not a pretty picture. He says they're liars and they're flatterers, their throat is an open grave. That is when they speak, it's like opening a casket, David says. Reminds me of James, who likewise warns us, the tongue is a fire and a world of unrighteousness and sets the whole world on fire. We, we know this to be true, I think, because what our mouth speaks is just revealing what's in our heart. As Jesus taught us in Luke 6. For out of the abundance, remember, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our, in other words, our, our words perfectly reflect what's going on inside of us. So you want to know what's going on inside you, just listen to your conversations. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the tongue is the hinge on which the door into the soul swings open. Or I like the metaphor that C.S. Lewis offered long ago. He says, if you want to find out what's in your basement, you have to surprise your basement. That is, you don't announce, I'm coming down now, right? You don't throw on the light. If there's rats down there, if there's roaches down there, right? 
whatever could be down there, you don't, you don't open the door slowly. You, what do you do? You sneak down there, right? And then uh, once you're down there, you throw on the lights to see what's going on, right? You want to know what's deep down in your heart, then, then listen to your words when you're not thinking, you're just reacting. It's just coming out. And you might be surprised what you find. To be honest, you, you might f- discover, as I have, that you are different than you sometimes think. Because, I, I, listen, in our, especially in our culture, we think deep down inside, what, it's all golden in there. It's just rainbows and sunshine, and, right? And that's why we, we tell everyone, well, you just got to be true to yourself. Because what, what do we assume? That yourself is only good. And whatever you, yourself is, that's good. And therefore, be true to it. And everything is going to work out, right? And everything is wonderful. And, 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 and so the inner self is good. But you notice what David says in verse 9. He has a different idea. He says the inmost self is destruction. He says, if you follow your own heart, that just leads to ruin. In fact, Paul picks up on this theme, doesn't he? And some of you already kind of draw the connection that in Romans chapter 3, Paul will quote from Psalms 5.9, and he declares that everyone, both Jew and Gentiles, under the curse of sin. We, we, we don't understand this, I think, in, in our culture. We're, we're often like the Pharisees who are just washing the outside of the cup. We want to change our behavior. We're, we're like the guy whose car is a total piece of junk, and the engine is shot, and the transmission has failed, and the tires are flat, and he's out there every morning polishing that car, right? And that's the, that's the best-looking car in town, and it goes nowhere. And I, I, I honestly think a lot of people's religion is like that. A lot of people's faith is like that. I mean, it looks good. It takes you nowhere. It doesn't produce any change in you. When the doors close and you're all by yourself, there's no, there's no difference there at all. And David is warning us of the justice of God. And this, this, is, this, is, this is what people are apart from God. I think we need to know this. We need to look in verse 9 and say, that is a description of humanity. The throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue and on. There is no truth in their mouth. That's our message. People need to see who they really are. Because until they're confronted with their sin, until they're, they're told these truths, why, why would anyone want Jesus? I mean, especially in, in America, right? Because everyone, I mean, let's just do Loudoun County. Most people already have a nice house. They have a nice spouse, right? They've got a couple kids. They have a nice car. They're spending their, a week on the beach this summer, and and, 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 and so, so what, you know, we, we repackage the gospel and we say, well, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for you. And that may be true, but, why, but why, do, why do they want a plan? They already got their own plan. They're already fulfilling their own plan. Why, why do they want someone else with a different plan? They like their own plan. My friends, that may be true. Jesus does love them and Jesus does have a plan for their life, but that's not the gospel. I, I think I appreciate Alistair Begg, who was one of the few pastors who would actually preach that I found on Psalm 5 and he says, somehow we need to approach them and say, excuse me, friend, your mouth can't be trusted. Your tongue is an open grave and your heart is filled with destruction, right? Now, we have to find a nice way to say that, right? But otherwise, why would they want a savior? You offer them a savior. They must be lost in order to need one. And this is why I think this, these truths, even if they're uncomfortable, are important for us. The gospel says, listen, you keep going like this, you're a dead man. So you see in verse 10. 
Make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. He, David calls for God's judgment, but it's not personal. You see, it's not they rebelled against me, they rebelled against you. And so he says, so banish these liars and deceivers, make them bear their guilt. And you say, well, I'm so glad we're out of the Old Testament. We don't talk like this and things like this. Well, my friends, it, you know what would be fun for you this afternoon is, is you got 10 minutes. Why don't you read the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 22. See how it ends, right? Take 10 minutes. I want to see how this all ends. And you know what you will read in the last chapter of the Bible is that those who lie will not be allowed into heaven. God's justice is fearsome. But I am pleased to say it is not the final word in this psalm. As we consider lastly, that God is wonderful. That is, he is full of wonder. Look at verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread, your, and, you, and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. So he describes a different sort of people and he says, well, there are people who love your name and there are people who rejoice in God and there are people who sing for joy and there are people who exult in you and they do all these things because they've seen God and they know God and they rejoice in God. Do you realize that in addition to the angelic beings, it seems to me that humans alone in all of creation are the only part of creation that are spectators by nature. And what I mean by that is that we watch the accomplishments of others. And so many of us do this in sports, right? We're all having a great time in in the MLB season, I trust. Um, Well, some of you maybe not so great, but I'm doing great. Um, And we, we watch, right? Do we watch? We watch the accomplishments of another athlete. And if, and, and, and if our team wins, we share the satisfaction almost as if we were there alongside. We even talk about we won, right? We put ourselves in there. We shout in triumph. We spend hours talking about their exploits. And if sports is not your thing, maybe it's music, right? Thousands of people will gather to hear one person play an instrument. And as they do, as they just watch and listen, they'll feel united as they're carried along. And believe it or not, I've heard this has happened, that even when someone preaches a sermon, one person preached, And a whole room full of people are carried along as they listen to another man speak. You see, we are spectators by nature. We derive joy in watching the experiences of others. And and, and conversely, we get sadness and grief from the defeat and trouble of others. Above all, we are to be spectators of divine glory. We are made by him to delight in him, to spend our hours recounting his goodness. And yes, as you see there in verse 11, singing of his greatness. I mentioned that I I spent five days in the wilderness with six of my children um, this week. We walked about 25 miles with everything we need to live on in our packs. We started our day on Tuesday in downpouring rain. When I lost the trail, I hiked through 200 yards of blackberry bushes, and my legs can show the results, right? We, we sleep poorly. We eat poorly. We are often in pain and discomfort. We don't have hot water or conveniences 
for day after day after day. And you would be right to ask why. (laughs) Why would anyone do that? And there are many answers that I could give you. But I want to see what God has made. I want want to get out in it. I want to feel it. I want to smell it. I want to... I want to swim in the, the creek that he's made. I want to, I want to feel the, 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 the cloud that I'm hiking through on top of a mountain. These are all points to a glorious God. In fact, we were sitting around the campfire one night, and we were thinking of that great song, Behold Our God, at least I was. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble in his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. See, the psalmist says, those who love your name, they exult in you. See, our Savior is worthy of everlasting praise. Our Savior is worthy of thunderous praise. For it's in him alone that we find refuge. You see, I've... To be honest, I found this psalm very puzzling and challenging. I mean, David says, God, God, you love me so much. And then he says, okay, you hate sin and sinners, and I'm a sinner, but I'm okay. And, and, and you, don't, you don't dwell in the wickedness with wickedness, but I'm wicked, but I'm also going to dwell in your house. And it's like, you're constantly thinking, David, how can you, you seem like you're writing two different things. How can you know you're okay? How can you be so comfortable around God in light of what you just said about God and the life you've lived? I think his answer is in verse 12 as we close. He says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. So David clearly must think he is therefore righteous. And is that troubling to you? How could he think that? Well, read on. You cover him, the righteous, with favor as with the shield. And so we might say you cover him, to use a New Testament word, with grace or mercy as a shield. So David says God's favor shields me. Shields me from what? Well, read the rest of the psalm. God's wrath. God's, we might say in the language of Psalm 5, God's hatred. I, I can stand up here and tell you I have God's Favor. It covers me like a shield. I was once your enemy, and now I am invited to sit at his table. And that's astonishing to me, because we read that God hates all evildoers. And I think, and I read that in my meditative way, and I think, God, that should be me. And I read that David says, make them bear their guilt. And I read, God, that should be me. But it's not me. And it's not you, my brother and sister in Christ, who bears that guilt. You know who it is? It's the Lord Jesus. This is a psalm all points to Christ. That we don't bear our guilt because Jesus did. Jesus became the boastful. 
At least he was reckoned that on the cross. Jesus became the wicked. Jesus became the evildoer whom God hates for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the bloodthirsty man whom the Lord abhors for us. Jesus became the deceiver whom the, the Lord will destroy for us. He was made the one with whom God cannot dwell as he even prayed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it for us. He took our place. And all of this curse and judgment that should fall on you and I fell upon Jesus. So when you read Psalm 5 and others like it, just don't shake your head in dismay at these verses and say, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. This is not the God I was taught about and I was brought up believing. No, you look at them and you see yourself in them. You say, that was my place. And then you see Christ in his great and abundant and steadfast love saying, let me take that place for you. I will bear it. Or who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? We ourselves were once foolish, were we not Christians? Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Do you have that mercy? I offer it to you today. I, in the authority of God's word, offer you the grace of God to cover all your sin today and forevermore. The Bible says, as Queen Victoria read long ago in Romans 10.9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you submit your life to Jesus? And for our Christian brothers and sisters, will we start our days with this truth? Who God is and what he has done for us that we too can exult and sing and rejoice in God our Savior. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the challenge that it is for us. And yet the beautiful and powerful picture of the gospel it presents. Help us to embrace all of your truth, even when it's uncomfortable. I think it's so good for us to be challenged. And even it's been good for me, and I hope it has been good for my brothers and sisters in Christ, even as we think about your perfect holiness and at the same time your abundant love for sinful people we thank you as David did that we too by the abundance of your steadfast love may enter your house let us do so daily we pray in Christ's name Amen. amen